Welcome to the Toronto Emoja Voice. My name is Della and I'm a community organizer. This is a community-based podcast highlighting news stories affecting the black community. We'll also be highlighting community-based events and organizations working on the grassroots level, doing work, so the wider black community in Toronto and abroad have an idea of what's going on in the city. For those who don't know, Yomoja is Swahili for unity, and it's the first day of Kwanzaa on December 26. The seven days of Kwanzaa is based off the seven principles called Ngozo Saba. This podcast will also be co-hosted by a fellow community organizer. Greetings, everyone. My name is Adrienne Grant, a.k.a. Ekwa, and I am a community organizer. I am an Awari Word trainer. I am a storyteller, a writer, a poet, and I am here as a part of Toronto Umoja Voice to bring the news to you and to have a conversation with you guys as well as we are working here today. Toronto Police Services, they plan to install CCTV cameras in Jane and Finch because, quote unquote, residents would feel safer. And uh, the the officers were using facial recognition software without um, the chief's knowledge, starting from October 2019. And it wasn't until February 5th when Chief Saunders put out a cease and desist order for them to stop using the um, facial recognition software. But now using Clearview AI, which they started informally testing. And Clearview AI offers a tool to search public images from the internet to help with um, investigations. So people have been concerned about this now because the Toronto Police Services has said that they've given notice to the community and they've made it obvious and transparent what they plan to do with the software and how they manage to, they plan to go about it. But we have community community members who are actually not on board with this. They believe that the cameras will increase racial profiling by the police. It will increase the amount of times youth are carded in the area. And uh, it's just a breach of privacy because this isn't just CCTV, CCTV cameras um, watching the area. These are facial recognition. This is facial recognition software. So once they catch your face, they'll know who you are, what you do, who you're acquainted with, everything. Because the way they operate is Clearview AI takes images from the internet and then uses it to scan um, faces that the Toronto Police Services has. And uh, then <clears throat> they'll just put those pictures side by side and see which ones would fit the footage on the camera. And that's how they would complete their investigations and make arrests and such the like. 
but people are con people are, some are convinced that it's not it is not the best way to go about it especially the ones who have been pushing to have less of a police presence in the community for example when we had police in schools they were pushed very hard to make sure that wasn't the case anymore because you have police just going about the schools and they didn't feel like it was a good image for their children to see and um, those who attended the town halls and meetings were the ones who were saying that um, having cameras in the community would make the community safer but it doesn't make you feel safer it just pushes the idea and pushes the control that the police has over the community. So not only are they physically here with their cars and their undercover officers and everything, they also have technology that is watching you as you go about your daily life, taking pictures of you and scanning your identity while you're just living your daily life. Even if you're unrelated to any crime that you that has been committed or will be committed, you would still be in their system. And they say that they would have the footage for 72 hours and at the 72 hour mark they would cut it but then who is to say that that's exactly the case and when you factor in the fact that the officers were informally testing clearview around october 29 and then without chief sanders knowing up until he knew and then put the cease and desist order february 5th people find it kind of hard to trust the Toronto police because if they're doing this and testing this technology without the chief, the head of their department not knowing, then how much are they hiding from us, the civilians? So there's been several developments to this story about the Clearview AI. It has been um, found out that it's been used in Calgary, Ottawa, Vancouver, and the latest story from CTV News on February 26, company behind controversial facial recognition software used by Toronto Police suffers a data breach. The company behind the controversial facial recognition software, which had been used by GTA Police Services, including the Toronto Police, suffered a data breach. Clearview AI confirmed the news to CTV News Toronto on Wednesday afternoon. In a statement, the company lawyer, Tor Eklund, said, Security is Clearview's top priority. Unfortunately, data breaches are a part of life in the 21st century. Our servers were never accessed. We patched a flaw and continue to work to strengthen our security. According to the Daily Blast, who first reported the story, Clearview AI sent its customers a notification saying someone had gained unauthorized access to its list of customers, the number of user accounts those customers had set up, and the number of searches its customers have conducted. Toronto Police, who confirmed that several officers who had informally tested the software without Police Chief Mark Saunders' knowledge for months said it was not used for it was not used for live streaming or real-time information gathering, and there were no costs associated with its use. So that was a story from the CTV News. There will be a link in the description box so you can read up more. But my problem is this. The Toronto Police have already been not truthful in their use of the technology, especially keeping it from Chief Saunders if that is the case. And this data breach is also very troubling because if they're collecting information 
on facial recognition and there's a data breach, who knows where this information could get into. This also reminds me of the database that the Toronto Police Services was using in terms of carding and collecting the information of innocent people as well. So this collection of information is very dangerous if this information gets into the wrong hands. And this is a situation we have to look at closely because there's always there's already has been untruthfulness in the use of this technology. So we will keep you updated on this story as more developments come in. As I said earlier, this technology has been used in Calgary, Vancouver, and Edmonton, and Ottawa as well. In regards to the CCTV being installed in the Jane and Finch area, my questions are this. Where's the CCT cameras in Rosedale? Where's the CCTV cameras in Baby Point, Ronsonsville, Leslieville, Little Italy, Greektown? If the cameras are not being installed everywhere, then why are these cameras being put into a racialized community, an over-policed community? That just further demonstrates the further control and surveillance of the police state going on. And if we allow the cameras to go up in Jane and Finch, then that's not gonna be the last community. It's gonna continue to go into over-police communities and they're, they're just gonna make the excuses of trying to make the community safer. If they really wanted to make the community safer, then instead of the continuous raids on street gangs, they would try and prevent the guns and drugs before they reach the community. If you think about it, these street gangs, they don't create the guns. You gotta ask yourselves who creates these guns and where they're coming from. So if the police continue to allow the guns to get into the city get into the country then the guns will continue to get into the street gangs hands and the violence will continue on and even if they do conduct their raids on street gangs then all they're doing is creating more space for another street gang to come and fill the void and take up the territory ultimately these are just band-aid measures while the community feels safer for a temporary period of time, it's not going to fix the overall problem, the long-term problem, which is how are these manufactured guns getting into the hands of street gangs in the first place? Just think of it like your own health. You can continue to eat very poorly year round and then you're gonna come to a time where your immune system is compromised you're going to get sick you have to go to the doctor get a treatment you'll feel better and then you continue to eat the same way over and over again until you get sick again and then you have to go back to the doctor compared to eating healthy eating properly putting the right foods in your system so you don't have to go to the doctor. It's 
what they refer to as preventative measures, preventative eating and lifestyles. So you don't have to go to the doctor to get a treatment. So we have preventative and we have reactive. If the police continue to have a reactive response to street gangs, then they're always going to have the problem of street gangs. They're always going to be able to chase their quotas month after month after month, locking street youth up. But they don't want to switch to the preventative measures and stop the guns from actually getting into the community. They have the money, they have the resources, they have the manpower. But what they want to do is depend on the community instead, and they want to harass the community at the same time. If you remember carding thousands of people and their information was put into a database that the Toronto Police Services still have. And the reasoning behind this was to keep the community safer. This is similar to what they had in New York referred to as stop and frisk. But overall, when you look at stop and frisk and carding, there was no evidence after all those years that it indeed kept the community safer. Going back to the CCTV cameras now, this is just another reactive police tactic. And as long as the police stay reactive instead of switching to preventative, then the violence will continue on. And don't get me wrong, it is it is up to the community to try and steer as many youth away as possible from street gangs. But the police are paid to serve and protect. As taxpayers, that is where our money is going to. So they should use that money to conduct long-lasting police investigations. And if the police really want the trust of the community that is what they need to do instead of coming to the community and treating the entire community like it's enemy ground now this next story is about a teacher named crystal clunis accused and exonerated of sexual assault from a 10 year old child i first heard about this this case when she was first arrested but details were very scarce. Now that the case is over, we can finally see yet another example of anti-black racism. Before I give my commentary, I'll break down the chain of events from just before the accusation to exoneration when the charges were withdrawn. So this is coming from the Toronto Star. Crystal Clunis was a 31-year-old teacher at the time in the Durham region. On Saturday night in October 2018, the minor who accused Crystal pranked called her husband's cell phone, which is available online because he's a real estate agent. Crystal said that when she called the number back, she recognized the voicemail recording of a former student at her previous school. Mrs. Clunis said she went to her old school on the Monday to tell the child's mother and the principal about the calls. 
which the boy later acknowledged making in his statement to police. She wasn't able to see the principal, but she did speak with the mother. A day later, after this conversation at the school that the boy alleged he had been sexually assaulted, Mrs. Clunis was teaching in her classroom when her principal said she had to leave because there was a pending allegation against her. According to a video statement given to police and played at the teacher's preliminary hearing, the student claimed Mrs. Clunis had given him a 20 to 30 second hand job at her desk in front of the class and had done the same another time in the same portable classroom during recess when they were alone with the door open. There would have been about 30 students in the classroom at the time of the first allegation, and yet police did not interview any of them prior to charging her, nor did they interview Mrs. Clunis. Within about two weeks, she was arrested outside a shopper's drug mart in her hometown, charged with two counts of sexual assault and two counts of sexual interference. She was kept in handcuffs outside for about 40 minutes by four male police officers who, she said, told her they had to wait for a female officer to arrive to pat her down in front of a crowd. Daniel Brown, her lawyer, said that with these types of allegations, it's typical to have the person surrender to the police station. Mrs. Clooney spent the night in jail sleeping on a bench. The next day, she was bailed with strict conditions, including a prohibition on contact with any child under the age of 14, directly or indirectly, unless accompanied by another adult. It meant that even a trip to the grocery store or a trip to anywhere in the community potentially put her in jeopardy of having contact with a child and having her bail revoked. Duran police put out a press release announcing her arrest, saying they wanted to ensure there were no other victims, which police told the Star is standard procedure in these types of cases. No one else came forward. Her name and photo were published widely by media outlets. Wilson, who was Miss Canada Globe in 2008, had a steady stream of work doing TV commercials as a model on top of her teaching. Her passport was revoked after she was charged, meaning she could not travel to a wedding in Barbados she had already paid for, nor could she go to her aunt's memorial in Jamaica the only member of her family unable to attend. She was put on paid leave from teaching and her volunteer work with her church was limited by the ban on being near children. She had to pay for a lawyer. Her part-time modeling work came to a halt. Plans to start a family with her husband of nearly 10 years had to be put on hold and the stress-induced seizures she had infrequently over the years were now occurring almost monthly. She started seeing a professional for anxiety and depression. Just leaving the house brought on anxiety. On Friday, February 22, 2020, the hearing didn't last long. A Crown attorney said that after a comprehensive review of the evidence from the preliminary hearing in which the complaint and a few other witnesses testified, the charges were being withdrawn as there was no reasonable prospect of a conviction. Daniel Brown, her lawyer, said, I think the results speak for itself. This wasn't a case where a judge said, I can't decide whether you did it or not. This was a case where the Crown Attorney said it would be unreliable to even try to prosecute this case based on the evidence we have. 
A Durham Regional Police spokesperson said he was not able to comment on investigative strategies or tactics in Wilson's case, but said the services the service respects the decision of the court. Now that Crystal Wilson Kunis has been exonerated of this alleged crime, and now it's been proven that she was innocent the whole time, people would assume that she would go back to her life as, as a teacher, as a part-time model, and everything will be fine since it's proven that she hadn't done anything. But I don't think that would be the case at all for her. Obviously, she has dealt with a very stressful ordeal that has taken a lot of her time, a lot of her energy, a lot of her money, you know, but a lot of her emotional well-being as well. Like, she mentioned that she was feeling stressed and she was anxious and how um, getting over the anxiety will take her time. The money that she spent on a trial and case and lawyer that would never have happened otherwise she won't get that money back it won't be reimbursed to her and the way she was treated while she was arrested was very deplorable it was disgusting because those police officers or whoever put those police officers into that position they didn't care about um her personal well-being they didn't care to do this in the best way possible it was a way that embarrassed her deeply because can you imagine being outside going about your business and then four police officers come and handcuff you and on top of that they make you wait outside with in public to get a female um a female officer to come pat you down but if you knew you're going to go arrest a female why didn't you bring a female officer along why does the female officer have to come after the fact, after you've already arrested her, after you put her in a position of looking like a criminal to these people in the community? Because once people see that now, see handcuffs on you, four police officers surrounding you, probably like a square or something, you know, people are going to automatically assume, oh, that person is bad. So no matter what has been said now, even though she's been um, proven innocent, people still have that opinion of her deep down. Things would never be the same for her. And I'm so very happy that she proved, well, I'm so very happy that the courts actually did their job and proved that she didn't do these things. And I'm happy that she's free and able to go about her life. But it's just unfortunate that her life won't be the same and the things that she planned for her life won't happen the way that she expected them to. Now, the police investigation is pretty shameful. And it just goes to the list of anti-blackness the police force has perpetuated. So the fact that they they did I can't even say they built a case because they didn't real really build any type of case, but the fact that they put forward a case to the courts based off the word of a ten year old without much further investigation is just mind blowing. Um, after saying she did it in front of the class full of students, um, it just does not make any sense. Um, how can a child even get to a point of telling a story like that to the police? I think that's a question that really needs to be asked and examined. What needs to be highlighted is how swift police will act against black women, men, and children when accused of a crime. It took two weeks to arrest her, but 
they didn't do a full thorough investigation for the courts so why did it take two weeks after the 10 year old child made a, a video statement to the police the media jumped on the story like vultures that's another um, that's another layer to this whole situation because the media would assume that the police have some evidence if there's a charge. It's just simply a sad situation because her reputation as a teacher has been halted and tarnished. So at the very least, because it's a 10-year-old child, he can't be sued for defamation. At least the parents should be called into question and go through the same public scrutiny that Crystal Clunas did. Sad situation all around, but just another example of the police state against black women and just black people in general. During a Peel District School Board meeting on February 25th, Brad McDonald, chair of the PDSB, called police on black parents, staff, and allies protesting a motion concerning anti-black racism because he was in fear of his life. The Toronto Star wrote a short article with little details, but I was able to get additional details from a Mississauga and Brampton coverage online. This is from Insaga.com. Police called after racism discussions become heated at Peel District School Board meeting. At least two trustees and multiple Brampton and Mississauga residents are furious after police were called to a tense Peel District School Board meeting that became fraught following the rejection of a motion dealing with anti-black racism. Brad McDonald, chair of the PDSB, issued a statement about the controversial meeting on February 26, 2020. Mac McDonald said that he had to recess and subsequently moved the public February 25th meeting into a private session because he was not able to maintain order. This is a statement from McDonald. In an effort to continue with the agenda, I made a decision to move the public meeting into private session. Angry chants broke out after McDonald told Mississauga trustee Noka Dakrub that her motion which asked the board to take steps to address the excessive disciplinary measures used on black and racialized students was out of out, was out of order. Quoting Dak Rube on Twitter, my motion regarding policing in schools was ruled out of order. I did not even get a chance to read it. According to Dak Rube's motion, trustees have learned of multiple incidents where PDSB children, specifically black children, were victims of excessive discipline practices that have resulted in frequent and unnecessary interactions with the police. The motion asks the board required that in non-emergency situations, school administrators contact parents, guardians, or family members prior to contacting police. The motion also asks that in non-emergency situations, school resource officers wait for a parent <clears throat> wait for a parent guardian or family member to be present prior to investigating arresting or handcuffing any student on pdsb property 
The motion also called on the board to enact a committee that includes two trustees, representation from Peel Regional Police and community members to review the local police school board protocol and school resource officer program in order to ensure equitable and fair practices. McDonald said that group's motion was out of order because the province of Ontario has legislated the police in their jurisdiction can create a police protocol with schools. Quoting McDonald, they have this 72-page document which details quite in depth how that will be accomplished, he said during a meeting. So this is under the jurisdiction of police and we cannot dictate them how it be done. McDonald said that the PDSB has been talking with the police and other organization and has learned that PO police will be reevaluating and revising and looking at this protocol. At that point, an audience member yelled, stand up for black kids, fight for black students. Who will stand up for black students? One woman yelled, trustees are elected officials. What side of history will you stand on? McDonald repeatedly called for order and opted to take five minute recess when audience members, some who were waving place cards, refused to stop shouting. Criminalizing our students, handcuffing our students, one woman yelled. Some residents were quick to condemn the board's decision to move the meeting into a private space on social media. So about this situation. So reading the title alone, when he said, um, reading the title alone of the article, the fear for my life, that excuse is just too familiar. But however, I still perform my due diligence and I listened to the entire one hour audio of that meeting in public and the portion of it that was moved in private. There was absolutely no reason to call the police and this only demonstrates the obvious problems with the PDSB, the obvious and ongoing problems with the PDSB. This also demonstrates the relationship between one anti-black institution with another. Remember, the motion was to address police protocol to handle children, which have been disproportionately black. The motion was denied, and the chair thought it would be appropriate to call the police on community members advocating for the board to review the motion. So that's just several, that's two different uh, layers of problems within itself. But some people might be saying, oh, uh, people shouldn't be shouting at the meeting. Um, people might say that, you know, he had a right to move the meeting to private. People might even say he had a right to call the police. But in previous meetings, somebody tweeted so this is uh, Trustee McDonald, not the not related to the Brad McDonald, but she tweeted the Peel schools allowed multiple known racists to yell and scream. They allowed people to get upset and tear up the Quran. They allowed drums to beat flags to be raised, but they have no patience for black people who advocate when our kids are being handcuffed and suspended for nonsense. So this just further demonstrates the anti-blackness that's been going on in the Peel District School Board. And it's obviously biased for him to uh, call the police 
um, on top of uh, moving the meeting from public to private. So Peel District School Board has a lot of work to do, and I commend everybody who continued to protest at the meeting. The following is a clip in the private meeting after it was called from the public meeting. So I'm adjourning the meeting into private session. So be it. When we had an issue with Wilton in Paris, people tore up the Koran, screamed, carry on. We cleared the boardroom, we waited for things to settle down, we went back in. When other, um, when predominantly white people were calling and making noise about the flag, we clear our boardroom, we go back in. Black people have made a sound, and suddenly now we are not going back in. And this heavy handed, we deal with our community, I will not sanction it. You told me to get the lady to leave the boardroom. I did. The community is in there. They are not being disruptive. And under a bylaw, you have the authority to clear her out. Right? And you didn't. You have called police before on people, the board has, to clear people out of the boardroom. Right? And I take strong assumption so, now that you want to come and hide in here and we don't want to discuss thank you. in public. So uh, you can appeal my decision to come in here. So uh, I'll hand it over to the director. Sorry, is the meeting being recorded? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So I'll hand it over to the director, uh, and the, the board will decide. Uh now that we've finished our highlights on the Toronto police and the news regarding them in Toronto and abroad, we will go into the TDSB, the education system now. And the teachers and education workers with the EFTO, which stands for the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, they, begin, they began their phase six of their ongoing strike action. So right now, only scheduled teaching and supervision assignments will be met by the ones who are on strike. They would not cover classes of absent teachers. They will only do what they have been asked to do for that day and only for the amount of hours that they were required to work. Classes, um, we've been hearing in the news that classes won't be impacted by the strike, when in fact they actually are, because classes that do not have a teacher or a supervisory staff present will have to be merged with the library time and there will also be a halt in curriculum because if you don't have teachers teaching the class the curriculum will not move as smoothly as it should so you will have students who will be impacted in terms of graduation students in grade 8 looking to graduate to go to grade 9 and for now, they have 20-minute pickets that are going on at least once, one day out of the week. And this will escalate job action on Monday, March 9th, if no agreement is reached. At this point in time, um, with the strikes, there has been word of compensation being put out for the parents who have to um, make necessary arrangements for their child when there is a strike day. They would get compensation by whichever means of check or direct deposit, depending on how they signed up for it. And people are saying that it is a way to bribe the parents to an extent because this, uh, the disregard of the, teacher, the teachers and what their needs are in terms of the agreement for their contract 
is not being met. And instead of addressing these issues, the government has decided to pay out its parents because of the strike, making it seem as if it's the teacher's fault for wanting better conditions to work in and wanting better pay for the work that they do because they are in charge of the youth of this um, society. They are in charge of the future generation, education-wise. So it shouldn't be so far-fetched for them to ask for proper wages, proper um, staffing, you know, not making sure that they're not doing too much that's expected of them, even though they probably will go over when the time need the time arrives because they have kids and they are invested in their education people will naturally go the extra mile for things that they believe in and if you have a good teacher who believes in giving the child the best education that they can possibly give they will go out of their way to do that and now the teacher is asking the government to give them a blight and help them on that way but they instead say it's okay instead of paying you the amount of money you asked for which i believe was either one or two percent we will instead take the this millions of dollars give it to parents and say oh we're so sorry that the teachers are going on strike here's some money just to offset that cost which doesn't really do much you know and it's actually kind of sad because we need to treat our um public servants properly and public servants are anyone who do work within the city or within their community that is of benefit to the community on a whole. So TTC drivers and, uh, you know, sanitation people, teachers, doctors, nurses, anybody who's working for the public deserves to be respected and deserves to be heard. And the way that the government is dealing with this right now is not the best way possible. And they always do this. There's always at least one strike a year with the universities and stuff. But you never really see elementary school teachers coming up and protesting for this long. At least uh, as long as I've been here, I've never seen that. It's always been the TAs or the professors doing their thing. So I am totally on board with them standing up for what they believe in. And as I said before, if there is no agreement on by monday march 9th they will escalate their job action so instead of having um a strike day one day f per week they will probably escalate it to something more so maybe two days per week or maybe they'll strike for a whole week once a month or something who knows we only see when they actually put out the notification that they will or will not be escalating the strike but I sincerely hope that they don't I just want them to get everything that they need so that they can teach our children properly because even um, the education system as it stands now in terms of teaching the youth what they really need to be successful in life, that is a questionable topic that can be spoken about another day. But they really do need to do the best that they can with what they've got. And they have the money. They have the resources to give to the teachers. They just choose not to. Because if they really cared, they would have just taken the money that they were giving parents to just give it to the teachers and raise their wages and raise their resource um, availability. Early this morning, an Amber Alert was issued for Shama Jolayemi. I apologize if I didn't pronounce that properly. He was a 14-year-old boy on his way to school on Wednesday morning when he was pushed into a black Jeep Ram Wrangler at 8.26 a.m., there was a witness who said that they heard him screaming for help and saw when he was pushed into the car and the car drove away. 
Yeah, so 8.26 a.m. is when he was taken, and the Amber Alert didn't come out until 12.02 a.m. the next morning. Now, when you usually get Amber Alerts when they're sent, you see that there's maybe a two-hour, three-hour difference between the time of the incident occurring. But this time, it was 16 hours. 16 hours passed before they put on an Amber Alert. That was plenty of time for that vehicle to leave Jane and Driftwood and go wherever it wanted to go. Because there are highways that are near that area. So for them to have 16 hours pass, that's more than half a day. Can you imagine how much driving someone can do in half a day just speeding down the highway? Mm. So people are questioning why the late report in the first place. And from when the, ta- the time the witness saw, <clears throat> and the time the witness saw Shama, they didn't report it immediately because if it was reported immediately then there would be no reason for the amber alert to be sent out in the next morning but if since it was sent at 1202 then it shows that the person didn't report it in a timely fashion and it was actually reported when the parents saw that their son weren't wasn't on his way home after they came home from work and that's when things started to roll and then and reports were made saying that shama was missing and then the Amber Alert came out. So, uh, very confusing. We'll keep things updated as the news comes to us. But this is what we have at the moment. That he was last seen at 8.26 a.m. on March 4th in a black Jeep Wrangler. And until then, we're just praying for him and hoping that he's safe. An update about this Amber Alert. Shama has been found safe. The abduction was connected to a $4 million drug deal that was left unpaid. That is connected to his stepbrother. In terms of the 16-hour delay in the Amber Alert, it looks like the school was at fault for not recording the attendance and not sending out the absence call to the parents apparently at the school that Shema attends they give a 11 a.m. attendance call to the parents and a 6 p.m. attendance call to the parents but the 11 a.m. attendance call did not get to the parents because of that four staff members at the school have been placed on home assignment while the school conducts an investigation. I'm glad that they were able to find the teenage boy safe and sound, but there should have been a lot more seriousness put into the situation, especially because that there are witnesses that actually seen and heard the boy get snatched into the vehicle. And with all the reports coming from the United States of missing women and uh, young girls, about 70,000 cases that uh, haven't been dealt with yet, there really needs to be more priority put into instances of kidnappings like this. But glad the boy was safe and sound. Now on to the TTC and all the news that's circulating around the Toronto Transit Commission. The main mode of transit 
for people living in the city and the outskirts up until where it reaches. So as many of you may know, there is a fair evasion campaign that's been going on as a result of the TTC reporting that they're losing $70 million to fair evasion. So now they've put out their campaign, which includes ads about fair evasion and the consequences and employing more fair inspectors to be on the streetcars downtown. And the ad campaign, I'll start talking about that one first. So they have these little ads that they put on all over the, um, the trains and the buses and everywhere you go and see TTC anything saying, for example, there's no excuse to pay your fare. You must pay your fare when you come on come in contact with the TTC. And if you don't, there's a $425 fine, right? And there are several other um, ads that are out there saying, oh, maybe I won't get caught. Chances are you will, and many others. People have seen these ads and felt that they were very aggressive towards passengers, especially passengers who cannot afford the $3.25 fare. Because I've seen it in my daily commute too. I'm on the streetcar. You see like two or three fare inspectors on one streetcar coming around um, asking for your proof of payment. Is that they show them a transfer or you show them a TTC card. When you show the TTC card, they'll, st- they'll scan it and then it's either you're free to go or they're like, oh, wait, hold up, something's wrong. And usually when that happens, it's because an adult would have a child's presto. So they'll say that that's fraud since their pay, the fare that they've paid is not the right fare according to them biologically. But then when you add up the amount of fare that accumulates within one day, within one week, because for an adult, it's three twenty-five one way. So it's six fifty both ways if you're just going home and coming back. And that's not even to account for um, if you have to go to multiple places within the day and it's not just an A to B route. So you will have people who try to cut back on costs because there are other things that we have to pay for. And Toronto is not exactly the bargain city of Canada. So, so with that being said, people feel that the TTC is being aggressive in their way to combat fare evasion when they're not trying to understand that the reason people are, ev- are evading fare is because your fare is too damn high. Now, as there are more inspectors on the TTC, they have complained about not having enough money, but they have enough money to employ over a hundred fare inspectors to be on the, the streetcars at any given time in the day. Usually you'd see them in the daytime, not so much in the evening or night, but when um, transit is active, they'll be on the streetcars asking for proof of payment. And there have been reports of assault of passengers. People have been assaulted because they didn't have the right fare or they were missing a few cents off of their fare. They'd be pushed off the train, train, no, sorry, pushed off the streetcar, told that they can't come on, given tickets. And there was even one incident when someone was actually physically attacked by two fare inspectors on the TTC. It's been recorded. It's in, it's on social media. If you look it up, it's there. When then that just when you hear these things and see these things, you're really questioning why is the TTC acting this way to the people that help make it run? Because if everyone decided to stop taking TTC, TTC wouldn't have any money. 
because we are the ones that are paying for the majority of the things that they're doing. And with all the money that they say they lose and all the money that they're trying to hope to gain from us, the fare, as it is so very high, but yet still um, transit is not the best that it should be. There are always closures. There are always, der- well, there have been two major derailments since the year started. It was like maybe a week or two apart between the two derailments. And there have been multiple closures. There have been multiple delays. There are times when there are shortages of buses because they have to like funnel those buses to like the shuttle buses and turn shuttle buses into regular buses. There is the construction of the metro links that's adding to everything as well. So Eglinton has been mush up. Eglinton will never be fixed because there's always something for them to do over there, even though they're putting out um, notices saying, oh, yes, we're almost finished. We just put up the, what was it called? The, um, what do call that thing where it's like the skeleton of a building? The um, blueprint. No, that's just the paper. I mean, like the actual physical skeleton before you start to meet the rest of the thing. No, I forget, but... Yes, they put up the skeleton of the station at Eglinton and they're making a big hoopla about it when you can't use it. So what's the point? It might as well just say you're not done yet. <clears throat> there are also presto malfunctions that people have been complaining about ever since they stopped um, selling tickets and tokens and they've and Metro Passes as well. And they've implemented the presto machines at all stations now. People have either loved the Presto um, Presto cards or they hated it. And because there are issues with the Presto card, you would tap it and it doesn't take the fare. Or you have money on the card, you tap it and it says you have no money. There are many issues with it that people have had it up to the neck with. And then you couple this with the TTC basically shaming anyone who can't afford to pay this high fare. People are just not happy at all. It's becoming a very hostile environment to be on TTC, and you can see it in the interactions between TTC um, passengers and employees. Because you will have people, even on the even bus drivers are unnecessarily hostile to people when it comes to the fare. It's like everybody's on edge, and everyone's on edge, and everyone is just tired of the mess. And I believe that transit should be free it should be a hundred percent free because the only reason people are taking transit is to go to work or to go wherever else to fund the economy so it's only right that the economy makes sure that the mode of transportation is free because not everyone can afford a car not everyone is brave enough to longboard all the way to where they need to go not everybody has a bike not everybody has a scooter not everybody has a friend they can carpool with not everybody has those means accessible to them. So it's in the best interest for everybody involved if it were free, because it's not as if we can't make it so, right? Now, there was a proposal to have homeowners taxed to fund the TTC so it becomes free for everybody. Uh, If you want more details, there's a link to the story in the description box. So the calculations came up to about a dollar a day. And I could already see some problems that might arise because maybe not all homeowners have use for the TTC. 
But imagine if everybody who already actively takes the TTC pays a dollar a day. People who currently have Metro Passes pay about 1800 a year. So that's automatically, that's a savings of $1,400 a year. I think TTC is onto something, but I want to shift gears a little bit and speak on economic unity in our community. With about 600,000 black Canadians, just over half a million in Ontario, if we all put a dollar not a day, but just one dollar together, that's six hundred thousand dollars. Two dollars makes it over a million. Three dollars with just half the black population is almost a million in itself. I can continue to play with the numbers, but you get the point. Now, I'm not the first to come up with this idea. And it's definitely easier said than done. I hear a common opposition to black unity that black people are not a monolith. My rebuttal to that is we don't need to be a monolith and dissolve our diversity. All we need is a monolithic idea and plan that will benefit the entire community. While we are not a monolith, our dollars are all the same. They all are accepted by banks. And most importantly, anti-black racism treats us like a monolith, regardless of nationality, class, and gender. And anti-black racism operates while we find different ways and talking points to, to divide ourselves collectively. Now, speaking on the topic of money, I'm going to be giving an update on the Pan-African Credit Union and other community events and initiatives that happen throughout Black History Month. Three organizations are teaming up to create the Pan-African Credit Union, the Jamaican Canadian Association, the Lion Circle African Men Association, and the Canadian Black Chamber of Commerce. The purpose of this initiative is to, is to provide an alternate banking option that better serves the Black community in the greater Toronto area and eventually across Canada. According to the National Credit Union Association of the United States, minority-owned and managed credit unions play a critical role in providing financial services to communities that have been traditionally underserved or unbanked. With the creation of the PACU, not only will we be providing financial services for the individuals and local black businesses, we will also provide financial education on topics from budgeting to wealth building. PACU is committed to serving individuals and families in the community as well as Black-owned businesses, thus inspiring tangible economic growth for generations to come in the Black community. Now go to www.pacu.ca to fill out the survey. 
All that information comes from their website, www.pacu.ca. They need 1,000 signatures to move forward, and they need about 400 more to reach that goal. As an active Pan-African myself, I'm excited to see this credit union launch. America currently has at least 30 active Black-owned banks and credit unions, while Canada currently is sitting at zero. We routinely have conversations about spending our money in our communities, but finally having our own financial institution will be an effective way of stepping up to the next level of keeping the black dollar within the community for a longer period of time. On Saturday, February 8th, the Amexamu Center held a Sankofa Holistic Health Conference. The theme, Return to Natural Medicines to Save and Extend Life. It, it was meant for the community and other professionals. The reason for this conference is because research shows people of African origin, black people, are experiencing one of the highest morality rates due to chronic diseases and disproportionately higher rates of mental health diseases due to post-colonial traumas and racism in GTA. The health conference was meant to help participants in the following ways. Understand the urgency of the crises and have access to the tools of self-care. Learn about lifestyle and nutritional choices to save and, and, and extend life. Meet natural health practitioners. Get answers. Make appointments and get discounts. Make a connection between food, nutrition, lifestyle, and diseases. Understand risk, strength, assessments of themselves, families, groups, organizations, and communities along a continuum of care for people of African origin. Understand traditional and culturally relevant, competent individual, family, group, organizational, and community-based capacity-building health interventions. The scope of this conference, all health practitioners discuss various diseases impacting people of African origin and provide clinical evidence of natural health medicines, diet, nutrition, lifestyle changes as playing a critical role in reducing these health and mental health diseases. Their goal? To start a coalition of natural health and mental health practitioners to establish infrastructure by and for people of African origin to help eliminate diseases impacting people of African origin in the GTA. I attended the conference and there were several powerful guest speakers and natural health 
doctors across the GTA. Some of the people there were Bishop Dr. Sean Howard, a child psychologist, Dr. Tisa Muhammad, a registered doctor of natural medicine, Sasha Reed, a plant-based health and cancer coach after beating cancer three times in two years, Dr. Alicia Young, a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Medrick Pollock, a world-renowned doctor in natural medicine. Also at the conference is Wapata, Wahipata Fakara, a senior initiate of Matam School, Toronto, and overseer of the Earth Center UK, bringing his expertise on the spiritual side. His specific knowledge is on the Kemetic, a.k.a. Ancient Egypt, and Dogon spirituality. He runs a Sunday program out the Harriet Tubman Community Organization near Don Mills Subway Station. Other than the healthy plant-based food, my favorite part of the event was the youth panel discussion on mental health. Mental health is one of our silent issues being discussed compared to black economics, police state violence, labor discrimination, and gang violence, just to name a few. There are a plethora of other issues facing our community, but mental health could be the result of one or more of these issues simultaneously. My biggest takeaway is that mental health doesn't affect just us alone, but also the people around us, like our family. After hearing some of the different journeys, each panelist on mental health had to face. I think having this panel was a great step towards the healing process and helping to break the stigma around black mental health. At the Amexamu Health Conference, Dr. Magic Pollock gave a very engaging presentation on health. He mentioned he was specifying that we should practice better eating habits than what we are engaging in now as a community. There are many factors as to why we eat the way we do, such as economic status, what's available in your immediate area, among other things. But he really emphasized that we should not be eating dairy and meat, as well as processed foods. We should lay off the have things that are heavy in salt, heavy in sugar, heavy in fat, because those things cause diseases in our body. And diseases come when our body bodies are at dis-ease. So one of the things that he said that struck out to me was not to mix acidic foods with alkaline foods, as they're not good for your body when they're combined. And he mentioned that fruits are mainly acidic and vegetables are mainly alkaline. So yes, we do need to intake both of them, but mixing them together isn't the best strategy. It was really interesting because usually I see um, products, not products, but foods in the supermarket mixing fruits and vegetables. So like the V8 drinks, for example, they have fruits and vegetables in them, as well as the Oasis juices. They have a mix of maybe a few servings of vegetables and a few servings of fruit. And I assume that was okay because fruits and vegetables, why not? But he mentioned that, nope, 
alkaline and acidic should not mix. If you're going to have one, have one, wait a little bit, have the other, but don't mix the two. Dr. Medrick also stressed the importance of us cleansing our bodies first, fully, before engaging in any um, herbal concoction to drink, because he was saying that there are a lot of herbs and plants out there that we can use to heal our bodies. We don't need to go to the doctors for prescriptions all the time because those things are manufactured in labs and everything we need to maintain our health is out in nature. So he was mentioning that we could use slippery elm, yarrow root, echinacea, um, burdock root, black walnut. Um, I think he said falls unicorn as well, but there are lots, there are lots of herbs that he was giving us and telling us how to use them exactly. If you'd like, we could put a um, a list at the in the description for you to look at. But yeah, he was very passionate about that, saying that there are a lot of things in nature that we see, even dandelions. He was saying that dandelions that everyone hates popping up in their gardens, popping up in the grass everywhere. That's a good route to use to keep yourself healthy. And we should be focusing on our health because when we say, when we are aware of our health and it's not the best, we said, okay, we'll go on a diet. But he was saying that we don't need to be on a diet because we're not trying to die. We need to be on a live it because we are doing this to live. Very funny play on words. I appreciated it. So yeah, one of the many things that he said was we really do need to clean ourselves properly before we decide to take these herbal concoctions because if we want to see the full effects of what he is prescribing well not prescribing actually if you want to see the full effects of what he is advising then we do need to start off from ground zero we need to start with a clean slate and to do that we need to fully detoxify ourselves on family day february 17th veteran community organizer brother sankofa held a men's gathering at jca to discuss ways in combat in combating the ongoing gun violence affecting black youth in the city brother lewis march of the zero gun violence organization was in attendance this was an event just for men Plans for the next meeting is tentative for August 1st on Emancipation Day at the JCA again. The next steps is to form a working group based on the warrior principles of ASAFO. Topics to be discussed is combating gun violence, but also African-centered martial arts like capoeira, martial arts like Qigong, discussions on mental health, technology, just to name a few, and a possible panel. Date and venue is still tentative, but stay tuned for future confirmed updates. On February 22nd, Curifica Canada had their community town hall at City Hall in downtown Toronto where they discussed several topics with their community members about police brutality, 
Karifika's racism strategies to combat this, the, their presence in the community, education for youth and the best way to make it accessible, mental health, day-to-day -day unity that needs to be reached with the Black community, and the breakdown of Black families and how we should respond as a community. Now, we need everybody to mark on their calendars Sunday, May 24th from 3 to 7 p.m. We are going to be having African Liberation Day at Northwood Community Center 15 Clubhouse, which is near Jane and Shepherd. That is uh, the closest intersection. This is the 62nd commemoration of African Liberation Day. It's celebrated uh, several places um, on the continent in Africa, the United States. Here in Toronto, we are looking to get as many community organizations together at this event. We are looking for vendors. We are still in the planning stages for this event, but we are planning to have drumming, food, panel discussion, and an overall positive, powerful, Afrocentric event for the day. African Liberation Day, Sunday, May 24th, from 3 to 7 p.m. at Northwood Community Center, 15 Clubhouse, nearest intersection is Jane and Shepherd. Stay, stay tuned for future details. So, this is the end of the show. We hope you are all more informed and aware of the issues facing the Black community and the grassroots initiatives in motion. Now, I would like to put forth a call to action for our community listening to join an organization if you're not involved in one and get involved in community organizing. There are several organizations working for the betterment of the Black community in Toronto. We brought some of the work to you in this podcast and we hope that you get involved because we need more soldiers on the front lines for more information you can contact us at toronto emoja voice at protonmail.com t-o-r-o-n-t-o-u-m-o-j-a-v-o-i-c-e at Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L dot com.